look, I'm not going to reinvent vision or that kind of stuff. I just kind of like for you to get to know me and me to get to know you. Um, because I thought that's where things all start in relationship together. Three years have passed, and uh, we're just going to start a process of looking at who are we? Who do we believe God is calling us to be? Yep, and actually having an ongoing conversation about that. Um, so yesterday, we had drew together a group of some ministry team leaders, some people in the church, and um, Rod Robson facilitated the process of kind of listening, dreaming, talking together. Now, if you weren't there, relax. That was just the start of a series of conversations. So where do we go to from here is going to involve more interaction, um, more for us to pray and talk and consider together. Um, how, why Rod? Um, a, I know him. Um, we've echoed each other a little bit and been in similar places and bumped up against each other. Um, he's... Uh, Currently, the Minister of Power Baptist, and we all went, a bunch of us went there some long weekend. Yep, That's right. to check out the, um, like the coloured glass. Yeah, yep, nice. coloured glass is cool. Um, other things are cool as well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, he's also a trained lawyer, um, so he, and actually um, does a bit of this facilitation work, did a great job for us. Rob's going to speak to us today and then reflect a little bit um, about that. Thank nice you, to have you here. Cheers. Cheers. Yeah, I was a lawyer, but I'm much better now. <laughs> I, um, when the earthquake struck, I was the pastor of Island Baptist, which is another point of contact we two have. And we had a relationship with North Avon Baptist um, and Delta Trust. And so once a week for, I can't remember how long it was, long time, we went over there and did stuff with their people. And in the course of that, um, I developed a sense of call to the Baptist churches of East Christchurch. Um, I left Ireland a couple of years later and went to Linwood, uh, not as a pastor, as the person sitting in the back row pulling faces at my mate who was the pastor and feeling free to be late. It was a very liberating period, that. Um, heckling at members' meetings, it was good fun. And now I'm at Opawa Baptist. So to come here and to spend some time with you is, for me, a sense of an expression of that call. So it's good to be back. I also really like having trumpets in the band. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I heard this story about this church staff meeting. And one of the pastor people was always falling asleep in their meetings. So the others got together and they decided, we'll fix him. So they all decided that they would bring a change of clothes and they brought a trumpeter along and they hid the trumpeter. And so Johnny, we'll call him Johnny, nodded off as he usually did. And so everybody else very quietly got their clothing out of their bags and put it on the seats. <laughs> you can see where this is going? <laughs> Snuck out. And then the bloke blew the trumpet, guy wakes up and thinks, oh my goodness, I've missed out, Jesus has come and I didn't make the cut. <laughs> I bet he didn't sleep well after that. Um, and I've got to say, I love your, your sign language Lord's Prayer thing that you're doing. And it was when we got to the... <laughs> What? 
when we got to the point of, you know, forgive others as, you know, have sinned against us, you guys were doing something, and I was sort of going like this. <laughs> Get a good slap first. Now, um, we have a, a little radio play for you to kick off with. So could I have um, Peter, James, and certain individuals come up, please? And this is from Acts 15. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said... It is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together, met together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets, as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen. From its ruins, I will rebuild it. Dramatic pause. And I will set it up, so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. But we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. 
Then the apostles and the elders, with the consent of the whole church, decided to choose men from among their members and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leaders among the brothers, with the following letters. <coughs> the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch, Syria and Sicilia. Greetings. Since we have heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though with no instructions from us, have said things to disturb you and unsettled your minds, we have decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they were sent off and went down to Antioch. When they gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When its members read it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After they had been there for some time, they were sent off in peace by the believers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, and there with many others they taught and proclaimed the word of the Lord. Thank you, gentlemen. Well... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite a members meeting, eh? It's not often you have a church meeting where the whole future of Christianity is at stake. But this was one of them. No pressure. Look at verse 1. Go the first slide, please. And it reads... Then certain individuals, that's this fella, came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, my experience is whenever the word circumcision is mentioned in church, half of the congregation cross their legs. Yep. <laughs> It sounds an odd thing to say to our ears 2,000 odd years later and a culture or two removed. But it would have seemed quite logical and reasonable to those first believers to say that. Think about these things. In Matthew 28, Jesus famously told his followers, go make disciples of all the nations. But do you think they really understood at that point what that meant? That they were to actively preach and disciple pagan nations, even those that were sworn enemies of the Jews? I doubt it. The next big event is Pentecost, in which the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples and they're praising God in other languages. But the audience that hears it are not pagans from those other countries. They're Jews from those other countries and converts that have come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. This wasn't an outreach to Gentile people at all. Anyway, the baby Christian church gets going. 
And initially, it's a very Jewish affair. God uses the persecution that's recorded in Acts 8 to sort of get the gospel moving out. And we've got um, the stories of Philip preaching to the Ethiopians and people going to preach to the Samaritans. Now, ethnically, the Samaritans were quite close to the Jews, but they'd always worship God in this slightly dodgy way. They were like those embarrassing cousins that everybody holds at arm's length at family weddings. You sort of feel like you've got to invite them, but you don't really want them there. Sort of like maybe the Baines. Can you think what I mean? You get in the connection? And here are the Baines receiving the gospel. And the Spirit is clearly active among them. So Peter and John go to check it out. And they give that Samaritan mission the stamp of approval. Yes, God is in this. And then further down the track in Acts 10, God gives Peter this vision in which he's invited to eat the meat of animals that would forbidden would be forbid, forbidden to him as an Orthodox Jew. Like pigs, for example. Bacon. Ham. Ham steaks. Pigs in a blanket. Mm. I'd have been delighted, but Peter is shocked. But he obeys what God is telling him to do. And God leads him to the Roman centurion's house, Cornelius' house. Even visiting a Gentile going into his house was against the rabbinic law. You might touch something and get unclean, I guess. And Cornelius, well, he believes the gospel that Peter shares with him, and the Holy Spirit falls on his house in power. So God is showing the early church leader, Peter, that, hey, the gospel's for everybody. And you go to Acts 13 and 14, describes the spread of the gospel out to the world, and lots of good stuff is happening out on the edge where the mothership doesn't hear about it and isn't troubled to try to control it. But eventually they do. Eventually Jerusalem hears about it and they send Barnabas, you know, son, go out and check it out what's going on. And Barnabas has a great time. He dives into the ministry and he's right into it. And it's this period of wild, unstructured growth. And I imagine it must have been a rush to be part of it. It must have been incredibly, incredibly exciting. The book's called The Acts of the Apostles, but actually it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit in reality. The apostles are clean on for the ride as best they can. God is the lead actor. The apostles and the Christians, they're the support cast. But then some faithful Jewish Christians on the scene say loudly, well, you know, to be saved, you've got to be circumcised. And according to Acts 15.5, that would have meant that everyone would have had to keep all the food laws and everything else that goes with being a faithful Jew. Now, Gentiles becoming part of God's people was not a new thing. Uh, in the story of Ruth, Ruth is a Moabite. She becomes a Jew. Uh, Rahab, who let them into Jericho, becomes a Jew. They accepted converts. These Jewish Christians were not being exclusive. What they were trying to do is be faithful to what they'd seen God doing now and to the Old Testament law that they understood, that they'd received. The people of God 
was supposed to obey God's laws. So they're saying, well, these Gentiles who believe in Jesus, well, they've now got to become religious Jews like us. And they're trying to marry their heritage and all that's good with it with the gospel and what they're experiencing. And they're living in tension with their spiritual and cultural heritage and probably their families. Much like my own mum, who was most unthrilled when I started attending the local Baptist church around the corner from our house at age 19. Even less thrilled when I eventually got baptised there. Not happy that night, because for her I was rejecting the family in doing that. But these Jewish Christians, they're good people. The Jewish hope was the Messiah, and they recognised that Jesus was that Messiah. Following Jesus would not have felt to them like they were leaving Israel. And if you consider the gospel stories, you know, Jesus was very clearly a Jewish rabbi. He took part in rabbinical debates about under Jewish law, whether you could divorce and when, and would you be married in the great beyond and all that. He believed in the resurrection and the kingdom of God, much like all the Pharisees. None of the Gentiles believed in that stuff. His sermons, and in fact his whole life, was kind of immersed in the Old Testament narrative, the Old Testament stories, the teachings of the Old Testament. His followers were all Jews. And his interactions with Gentiles, us lot, pagans, were a bit mixed. If you think about it, he declared that the ministry, his ministry was to the children of Israel, not anyone else. And in Matthew 15, he referred to the Syrophoenician woman he came across as a dog. Yet, on the other hand, he healed the Roman centurion's daughter and he spoke words of life to the woman at the Samaritan well, both of whom were Gentiles, not Jews. So kind of mixed, actually, if you look at the gospel stories. And I imagine these people saw the... Um, church as being a sort of a change movement within Judaism. A bit like the Methodist church in the 1700s or the Brethren in the 1800s or the Pentecostal in the 1900s. To become a Pentecostal didn't mean you ceased to be a Christian. You just had some new insights and that expressed itself in a different way. So the question that this body of people the Jerusalem church had to grapple with was, was their new faith a reform movement within Judaism or was it a real game changer? Is there a whole new deal, a whole new covenant starting between God and humanity that's going to supersede God's covenant with Israel? To go with the latter, that's a huge call. Huge call. And I want to look at this story today because I think it's got a heck of a lot to teach us. Because God does not supernaturally intervene and tell them what to do. No one stands up with a thus saith the Lord, here's the answer. And we often think of the early church, you know, sort of had God on the end of a phone. But they didn't hear. Paul has a vision not long afterwards about where he should go to preach the gospel, which I think is a bit like having God on the sat-nav, really. Who's got a sat-nav in their car? Yeah, it must be nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you get in your instructions in the 300 meters, turn left, all that kind of carry on. 
And sometime before, the Spirit had specifically told the church at Antioch to commission Paul and Barnabas. But in this occasion, this big, big meeting, there is nothing written in the sky. They had to work it out together, which is usually what we have to do. So I think it's pretty helpful. Well, the first thing they did was they listened to the pro-circumcision people and they considered the question. Listening is an incredibly empowering and disarming thing to do, I reckon. When someone really engages with what you are saying, we're not used to that. Normally when you're talking to someone, they're composing their sort of response in their mind as you're talking. I try to listen, and I know I've succeeded at the end of a conversation when someone says, I didn't mean to tell you all that. The reason is, they've been heard. Now, verses 6 to 11, on the next slide, recount the initial leadership discussion of this question. We are told that after much discussion, Peter spoke up. Now, I don't know about you, but my impression of Peter is he's one of these people who acts first and thinks later, generally. That's how he comes across. Good fun, but dangerous. But if you look at what he says here, very considered thing for him to say. And he says, let's think about what we know, the way that God has been leading us through the encounter of Cornelius, and all we've seen that his spirit is really not staying within the traditional box as we've understood it. We and the Gentiles are both being purified by faith and we've been saved by the grace of Jesus, not by keeping the law. He goes to the bigger picture, the right out here of what God is doing and he relates it right down to the issues that they're facing on the ground. Hugely bold prophetic thing to say at this stage of early, early stage of the Christian journey. Then in verse 12, which is the next slide, the whole assembly hears what the Spirit has been doing among the Gentiles. And Jesus' brother, James, brings the issue back to Scripture, which says that there would be a group of Gentiles who would bear God's name. Then in 19 to 21, he engages in the very practical question of how Jews and Gentiles were going to coexist. And the interesting thing about the New Testament is there's, it's there's almost no theoretical theology in it at all, except a bit in the Book of Romans, really. Everything else that comes through is actually in the context of, we've got this practical problem on the ground, what are we going to do about it? The Gentiles were to refrain from eating food offered to idols, the meat of strangled animals and sexual immorality. Now, the only one of those three things which is a universal thing, I would suggest to you, is to refrain from sexual immorality. The other two requirements were to protect Jewish feelings. After all, there is nothing wrong or immoral with eating a black pudding. Who here has eaten a black pudding? Now, that is not to say that there are not other issues with eating a black pudding. <laughs> I've never been able to bring myself to do it because the thought grosses me out. But I don't think it's immoral. And if you want to, you can have mine if we're, <laughs> next time we're out. James was not coming here and legislating a whole new set of rules. 
The Jehovah's Witnesses, you may be aware, object to eating black puddings and taking blood transfusions on the basis of these verses. But they miss the point. Jesus didn't come to replace one rule book with another better one. He came to set us free to live moral lives in the power of and shaped by his spirit. And the best exposition of that is in Romans 8. James's proposed solution, this don't uh, take blood, don't eat strangled animals and stay away from sexual morality, was adopted by the whole church to a particular issue at a particular time, not for all time, except for the sexual morality one. The best evidence for that is that when Paul talks about eating food offered to idols in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, he takes a much more liberal approach. He says, yeah, do it, as long as you don't offend anyone. And then you leap forward to Revelation, and Revelation 3, John says, don't go anywhere near it. Now, each of these three writers, James, Paul, and John, sounds like a 60s rock band, doesn't it? Um, Peter, Paul, and Mary. James, Paul, and John approached the issue differently because they were in different circumstances, dealing with different people. And interestingly for me, the lawyer, neither Paul nor John refer to the Jerusalem Council as some sort of legal precedent. They don't refer to it at all even though that we know Paul was there, and it's probable that John was too. They weren't hung up on it. Now, the letter that the Jerusalem church sent is in Acts 15, 23 to 29 up on the screen. And the key verse here, I think, is the words, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The decision made was not the result of a debating contest like at Parliament, where the biggest, cleverest argument wins. But they came together to discern what the Spirit was saying. We're told in verse 31 that the Gentile believers were encouraged by this letter. Encouraged by what, I wonder? I think as being addressed by brothers or brothers and sisters by a largely Jewish group of Christians would have been quite healing, given what they had been experiencing. And the traditional Jewish disgust with Gentiles was well known. The Pharisees had this prayer, Thank you, Lord, that I was not born a dog, a woman, or a Gentile. Sums up their prejudices quite well. The other thing that was stated here was a desire not to be a burden to them. Not to impose rules which had no relevance to their life or to their experience. Now we have stacks more revelation than they did because most of the New Testament wasn't written at this point. But the decisions that we face today are about our own church's direction and character, not the whole Christian faith. So there's a little bit less pressure riding on us. But we can learn a lot from this story as they maintained their unity and their diversity. Four things. First of all, they listened to different points of view. They listened to the people who believed in circumcision and were weary of too much change and to Paul, this person who'd probably killed some of their friends from the back of beyond when he was a persecutor of the church. 
A key Baptist plank is that the Spirit can speak through any believer, as we are all his priests with only Jesus, our great high priest. That's really important. That's as Baptist as knee socks and sandals. Don't you know the Baptist uniform? Yeah. For a Baptist man, it's um, facial hair that was fashionable about 10 years before. Uh, a check shirt with a plastic thing with the pens in, so if the um, pen leaks, you can um, catch the ink. Uh, walk shorts, knee socks. Like a science teacher from the 1970s. Anyway, that's very Baptist. I heard a of a church um, in Auckland a few years ago that had fallen to a really low ebb. They were getting quite small in a very needy community. And they were talking about what they... Um, could do, which they didn't feel like was much. But one woman, who was not particularly known for wisdom or insight, said, I think that we should open our doors, smile, and give everyone who wants one a cup of tea. Which seemed good to the spirit and to them, and so that's what they did. And from those humble beginnings, a multifaceted community ministry was born that is now considered a model of its kind. The spirit spoke to the edge. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 exhorts us to honour all parts of the body, even the unmentionable ones or unpresentable ones, not looking at anyone in particular. We honour each other and we respect our great high priest by listening to each other. For me, a leader or a leadership team who comes down from the Port Hills with the word of God for their congregation is not honouring the whole body of Christ. If you don't listen to me, then the message you are sending me and has been received is I'm not worth listening to. That I can't hear from God in the way that you can. That you are that little bit more special than I am. I understand that in Roman Catholicism it's taught that once someone is ordained as a priest and they are considered a different type of person from you or me. I don't envy them that pressure or the isolation that that kind of status would bring. In top-down Protestant churches where the leader is put on this really high pedestal and so is set apart and special, the choice in the end of it becomes, if you're in that congregation, will you either conform or you leave. There is not the space to kind of have a disagreement or work things through. And I suspect part of the attraction of those churches is it puts a lid on the conflict and the politics, but it's an artificial lid because you're left with Hobson's choice. Stay or go. I don't believe that the church is supposed to be an opt-in or opt-out dictatorship. But if you think your pastor is a special kind of person, then that's what you end up getting. Well, in the Jerusalem Council story, they managed to listen and engage. Good Baptists, all of them, I feel sure. So that's the first one, listen. Second one point is discern rather than debate. Our role when we gather is not to push our own view, but to be open to the leading of the Spirit. At the end of the day, for example, we need to be able to say that it seems right to the Holy Spirit and us that Lauren be an elder or Colin be our pastor. Baptist churches are traditionally understood, even by Baptists, as being democratic. We are not. We are Christocratic. Jesus is the head of the church. Every church, including this one, 
not us. And what we're trying to do when we gather is to discern what he's saying and where he's leading and follow it. For us as Baptists, it says in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in Jesus' name, there he is with us. When 70 or 80 are gathered in his name, he is here with us. Other Christian groups see communion or the presence of a set-apart priest as being sacramental, like this sort of special channel pipe to God thing. For us, the sacrament is gathering in his name, like we're doing this morning. He is amongst us today at our services. And our task is to try to faithfully interpret what he's saying to us. Now, we might get that wrong. Let's be frank. We're part of a human community, but we discern first before we decide anything. We believe in a God who is active in his creation and continues to speak into it. We discern rather than decide. Give an example. At Islam some years ago, we were going through a discernment process, trying to work out where the passions of our congregation overlap with the needs of the community. That little sweet spot. It was difficult because many of the people at that stage were in the little kid phase of their lives. I'd never done so many baby dedications as I had at Islam. It's probably about 10 or 11 a year. I was getting quite good at it by then. And most of those island people were not living locally. And most of them had careers and mortgages and all that. Well, in the midst of this exercise, one day I was speaking at the Christian group at Lincoln. And I met a young woman there, that, and I got there a bit early, and there was a young woman there who looked Asian. And no one was talking to her. And I thought, this is a bit disturbing. So we had a chat. She told me she was from Laos. And I asked her what, what it was like being a you know, a visitor from overseas in New Zealand. And she said she loved Lincoln. But she told me about how her and her friend had had young guys hanging out of the windows of the car, abusing them and throwing stuff at them down the main street of Lincoln. I was appalled. And I was moved. And I went to see the university overseas contact people who said her story is actually typical, that overseas students put up with that kind of stuff constantly here. And they often feel belittled by their lecturers for belonging to conservative cultures. They don't get to meet many Kiwis. Many of them live in four-bedroom houses, which were, by the operation of jib partitioning, have become eight-bedroom houses. And there's one in the garden shed. All at 100, 115 bucks a, a room. Very isolating life. What could I do, we, I asked. Well, they, they said to me, take them home for dinner. And so we did. And island people flocked to this en masse. And it's been a great mutual thing over the years since. The dinners were massive, sort of 70, 80 people at times. And cell groups and low-key evangelism and all sorts of other good stuff has flowed out of it. We found that point for that time where the passions of our congregation overlap with the needs of one slice of the community that we were close to. So that's the second thing. Discern, not decide. Third thing, leadership is a collective game. It's a team sport. Peter and James took the lead in this discussion, but they did it in the context of the whole wider congregation and the wider leadership. We need to share our insights, no matter how humble they might seem to us to be, and empower and encourage those of us among us with leadership gifts. 
It's wrong to passively acquiesce just as it is wrong to actively undermine. Got to get involved. Good leadership is about being a positive influence on the conversation and on each other. We can all do that. I was asked at the interview for um, the pastoral role at Opawa why I thought I was called to be their pastor. The panel were looking at me quite intensely and heartbeat went up. I felt the pressure was on. I could feel this drip of sweat going down my forehead. How do you answer that? Well, from somewhere, and I think perhaps my Baptist angel, I said, well, I think actually the question's for you, not for me. Because in Baptist thought, the call to position only exists when it comes out of a community of faith. I could think and feel all I liked about being called there. But actually, it's about the church calling and recognising that. It's a useful check on the ambitions of wannabe pastors. My call to serve comes from them, not from inside me. And there's a flip side, I think, to collective leadership. And that is that we as a congregation need to take responsibility for our decisions and not just put them on the pastor of the time. I get quite annoyed when I hear about, oh, the last pastor, he did this and that and that and that and that. And I said, did you go along with it? Well, yes, we did. Yeah, well, then you all did that and that and that. Actually. Third thing, leadership's a team sport. And fourth one, applied wisdom. The Jerusalem Council is a good example of godly leaders evaluating wisdom, their collective experience of God and the scriptures. Ultimately, the whole shooting match, the whole church, was prepared to follow where the Spirit led, even though that was a new and a risky place for them to go. They might lose people. In fact, I'm sure they would have. People that were precious to them. And they're aware, probably, of the stress of moving away from their own roots. We need to be prepared to do the same. So the summary. Listening to different views. Discern, not debate. Collective leadership. And applied wisdom. Well... Yesterday it was my privilege to spend a good bit of the time with about 15 of you folk. Talking about where you've come from, where you are and where you're going. It was good fun. A lot of laughs. And back 20 plus years ago, Parkland's 1.0 sounded like an absolute blast. Really did. Some profound experiences of the Holy Spirit and the church planting. Exciting times, lots of people, lots of fruit. It must have been a wild ride. Then there was Parkland's 2.0, in which there was a strong emphasis on loving service to and connecting with the local community. You know, responding to the earthquake, uh, the sort of smorgasbord of community ministries that you guys have, have and have had, it clearly spins people's wheels here to know that you are well connected into the community. Well, now it's Parkland's 3.0, and it's a tougher place. It probably feels a little bit more like an exile than a harvest time. There's a missing generation, 
as many of your kids go elsewhere, there's less young adults and youth and less kids. And many precious people, I heard, moved away after the quakes. There's a sense of tiredness about, rather than perhaps the energy of earlier eras. New leaders are not coming through as they once did. And only now and again does a new person come to faith for the first time. That's tough. It's a tougher place. And the question was asked, do you think we did something wrong somewhere along the way? And I said, no, I don't think so. There were massive sociological, societal changes going on in the backgrounds, probably for the last 50 years, that have finally made their presence felt here. And a good example was the story of Roger Spicer getting on his bike during the 1980s, which is a picture I'm still trying to get my head around, but anyway. Um, I have to say, it's good that I wrote his name down, because when I think of Roger, I always think of Santa. But anyway, uh, Roger Spicer getting on his bike during the 80s and going to visit people in their homes during weekdays. Well, if Colin did that now on a Wednesday morning, how many of you would he find at home? A few, but nothing like as many as the 1980s. Things have changed. Sorry, I've slipped a page. Here it is. Whatever Parklands 3 will become, I doubt it will be all things to all people in the way that earlier versions were. The reality is you are a smaller church. I suggest you will be a strongly relational faith community that does less things, perhaps than previously, but does them very intentionally and well-resourced with people. I think you need to discern the social niches, like Island did with the overseas students, in the community that the Lord wants you to major on, to work into, to bring his message of hope into. It might be children. It might be young adults, it might be people with psych issues, it might be sole parents or beneficiaries, retired widows, young families. It might be a couple of those groups, but it won't be all of them. The metaphor is you used to be a department store, now I think it would be more helpful to think of yourselves as a small row of boutiques. I suspect it will also have a strong dimension, strong focus on discipleship. Because actually God's workers are more important than God's work. We're in the business of growing people, not programs, not ministries, but people. God's mission in the world is to gather a people to God's self, to add breadth through evangelism, yep, and conversion, but also depth through discipleship, through shared life, through Christian friendship. Breadth and depth, evangelism and discipleship. The sense of your leaders is that the status quo is not okay and cannot continue indefinitely. That change is necessary. And their sense too is that the Holy Spirit is leading you to pause to listen to each other, and to reflect. 
The Spirit will provide biblical patience and biblical hope. The hope that God has by no means finished with this community. He is an activist God who loves the world, this teeming, smelly, noisy, broken world scarred by sin. John 3.16 tells us God loves it. Loves it. The process kicked off yesterday and over the next few months, that conversation is going to be broadened out as, as Colin said to include the whole congregation. I'd like to pray for you if I might. Gracious God, I thank you for everything that has happened here. For the new life, for the growth, for the relationships with your lost world, for the support that's been given to community, for every good thing. Lord, I pray that you would help your people to discern deeply, to embrace the need for change and growth. I pray that they would be grateful for the blessings of this place, for the challenges that are ahead and for each other. That you would help them to hang together and that you would point the way ahead. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I invite you to stand. We're going to finish the service with a benediction. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you hope, rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home, rejoicing once again into our doors. Amen. Have a good week.